Well, I hope you've had a good walk with Jesus this week. And now we come here on the Sabbath, and we're in Acts chapter 3. We've moved from Pentecost with the big crowd and the excitement. And now it's a regular day. But there's never a regular day with the Lord. He's always up to something, right? So take a Bible and turn to Acts chapter 3. I'll give you the page reference if you're using the ones in the pews. Page 1694, 1694. Did I say 1844? No, 1694. And we're going to see two men, Peter and John, focusing on one individual. And we need to learn the lesson that one individual is important. Jesus showed that with Nicodemus and with the woman at the well. And now these two men are continuing the ministry of Jesus Christ because that's what God's church family does, right? right? So every day, you and I are representing the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's see how, how well Peter and John do with this professional beggar. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you that you are constantly working. And I'm sure, Lord, today you're very active, working in the lives of individuals, trying to bring men and women, boys and girls, to a knowledge of you and your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we, we solicit the precious gift of the Holy Spirit here today so that these words come alive in our hearts, that they energize us, Lord, to leave this sanctuary and to share Jesus with whoever your Spirit has prepared. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, as we turn to Acts chapter 3, we are moving, as I said, from the crowd to the individual time-wise. I have no idea when this is, this incident happens after Pentecost. But those, who have, those of you who have been coming from week to week, or those of you who know the book of Acts, know how important chapter 2 is. It's a picture of a perfect church. And it ends, it ends after all of these amazing tongues and thousands of people responded. It ends with a unified church. Now we pick it up in chapter 3. One day Peter and John were going up to where? To the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. And when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. So that's the setting. A professional beggar. This man had been doing it for many years. He was over 40 years of age. And he had a congenital disease from birth. 
Remember, Luke is the one writing this, Dr. Luke. So he mentions things like feet and ankles. And if you're used to, if you're conversant with Luke's writings, the Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts, you know that many medical terms come in from this man. I sometimes think it's important to put yourself in the shoes of Peter and John. For them, it was probably just another day. Jewish people went to the temple three times a day to pray. They had three separate uh, services, so to speak. And so they're just going up. Just an ordinary day for them. And for the beggar, just an ordinary day. Now, he had a sweet spot that people carried him to. This man was professional at what he was doing. And he had expectations. Karen was asking me for a title of my sermon, so I said, oh, put in great expectations. I don't know if it's because Charles Dickens was on my mind or, or whether it came from the text here, but this beggar had expectations. What did, what did this beggar want? Money, give me, give me, give me money. And it must have been hard day after day, year after year, begging from other people. Have you ever had to beg for anything? If not, most of us would never really understand. Does it give a person low self-esteem? I remember um, I was with some pastors once in San Francisco, and they said, let's go and see the Bushman. Well, who's the Bushman? I'd never heard of the Bushman. Well, he's a man that comes to Fisherman's Wharf with a bush. Bush? What are you talking about, Pastor? Well, a bush. Bill cuts them down. Where's your bush, Bill? Bill cuts them down this week. Those were kind of big trees, but these, this is a, a bush like this, maybe five times bigger. And the bushman hides behind his bush on Fisherman's Wharf. How many of you have seen him? Okay, so that looks like most of us haven't. So that's our next church social. <laughs> right there. See how easy it is to plan things for the church? And he'd hide behind the bush, and when these tourists would come along, and the best ones are innocent Japanese ones. Those are the ones that I was, when I was watching him, uh, young ladies, he'd, he'd jump out. Now, this is a big guy, Afro-American six-footer. And he'd jump out from behind the bush and go, Aah! and they would jump. And then they'd give him money. Huh? I don't know how to make that connection. Somebody that scares you out of your wits, and you give him money. Do you give him money to get rid of him? I don't know. But this guy was raking in the money. We stood there for about 20 minutes watching him. And uh, later, I, I, he was asked about what he's earning. I actually saw this in the newspaper. I think it was about 80000 a year tax-free. So I thought, okay, there's my retirement right there. If my 403 doesn't work out, Fisherman's Wharf, here I come. So this man, the bushman, was professional. He was good at what he did. And eventually the bush would wear out and he'd cut another one down and 
take it on the job, take his props with him. And this poor beggar, he's a getter. He's somebody that's in a situation in life where he's constantly receiving. Is he able to walk to his favorite spot to beg? No. Somebody needs to carry him. He's dependent on other people. And what we're going to see with Peter and John, they are the givers. And I want us to think today whether you are a receiver or whether you are a giver. Or maybe you're a little bit of both. So, verses 1 to 5 say, from birth this man was sick. Later in the text it says over 40 years of age. He was carried. He had picked his spot. He knew what he was doing and he was after money. And notice there's nothing mentioned at all about this man having faith in Jesus Christ. So if you and I were writing the story, we might write it a little bit differently than Luke did but it's not there. Now, whether it was there, well, you're going to need to decide that yourself. But I think, what's it like over and over and over every day, seven days a week, begging? I don't know if they were allowed to do that on the Sabbath. Maybe it was six days. But for him, it was just another mundane, ho-hum day. Now we see Peter and John. They're off to prayer. Joe was just emphasizing uh, the importance of prayer this morning. And these men, true to their tradition, still at this point not not, uh, excommunicated from the temple, still able to worship there, are planning to go there at three in the afternoon. In verse four, or verse three, when this man saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. He saw something in their face. Hope sprung up. Maybe, I don't know, maybe he thought they looked like money men. And what did Peter say? Peter looked straight at him. He looked straight at them. They looked straight at him. And John did too. And Peter said, look at us. Hmm wonder what we should read into that. Are they seeing the face of Jesus in Peter and John? Is faith going to happen as they look at these men? What is being transferred in that look? So the man gave them his attention. Were Peter and John giving him their attention? Isn't it easy when you see someone day after day begging to walk past them, to not even make eye contact. What would you do? What would I do in that situation? But Peter and John give this individual man, this insignificant beggar, their time, their attention. Uh, You're going to have a communication seminar. Do you know how to listen? Pastors are paid to talk. Pastors aren't paid to listen. I never had a class in my life on listening. Is listening important? Peter and John are listening. Peter and John are giving time. Peter and John are giving attention to this individual. And because of that, 
this beggar is now giving them his attention, even though his expectations are very different than our Peter's and John's. Peter said, silver or gold I do not have. Those are good materials to have nowadays. But what I have, I give you. This man is used to receiving, but he has never, ever in his life received what's going to happen on this ho-hum day. What I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Now we're talking about impossibilities, right? Has this man ever walked in his life? What's going through his head when Peter and John make this request? When Peter makes this request, where is the faith? Certainly not explicitly mentioned in the text. Taking the beggar by the right hand, he helped him up. Very similar to certain incidents with the Lord Jesus Christ that Peter and John had seen. Can you think of stories in the life of Jesus where he did something very similar, extended his hand to the sick person? He helped the beggar up, and instantly what happened? The man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet. Not because he's scared of the bushman. He jumped to his feet. He began to walk. And then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. Well, it's one thing to walk and to jump, but don't do it in church. Right? Don't do it in church. I mean, didn't they rebuke Jesus for some of the things that he and his disciples did on the Sabbath? Or things that they did in church? Or things that they said in church? If God is at work, then church is wherever two or three are. If miracles are taking place by the hand of God, then God is there. Whether it be on the basketball court or wherever, there's no limitations to where God can walk. But this man is so thrilled, he's so excited, this impossibility has become a possibility in his life, and for the life of him, he doesn't deserve it, he doesn't understand why, he just knows it's happened. What's he saying when he's praising God? Well, it doesn't tell us all of those things. But he knows that God has done something very wonderful in his life. And he is just full of praise. To me, this is the key ingredient to a successful Christian life. You may focus on your performance or lack thereof. Personally, I don't think that's a very successful way of living the Christian life. But to praise God, 
When we get pictures of heaven, the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about heaven, but when we do have some pictures of heaven, like in the book of Revelation, the angels are constantly praising God. And I think of that as like the, the energizer bunny. He's, the life of God comes from God, and as, and, you, and as you receive from Him, and you, you return to Him your praise, it's just like your batteries are recharged. Isn't that something that we all need? So instead of complaining about the situation or focusing too much on self, let's lay the emphasis on what God is doing in my life, in the lives of others. If your brothers and sisters have the hand of God in their life, then is that not something that we should praise God for? I mean, we shouldn't covet that. We shouldn't be jealous of that. We just thank God that He's an active God and that He's working in the lives of even poor beggars. Anyway, this man jumps to his feet. He's walking. He's jumping. He's praising God. I'd like to act it out, but it may not be acceptable in the Anderson Church if I bounce from one side of the sanctuary to the other, so you have to kind of imagine it in your head. And when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him. They'd seen him day after day after day. They recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. There's a lot of similarities with chapter 3 and chapter 2 of Acts. The miraculous events that are taking place, the, the way that it gets the attention of the crowd. See, that's what God's into. Yes, God wants to bring healing to cripples, but the majority are not healed. Just a few are healed. And oftentimes in the Bible, when we see the few that are healed, it is, it is for a further purpose. It is for the glory of God in some other way than, than just the obvious way. And the further purpose here is to get the attention of the crowd. In Luke chapter 2, the gift of tongues did that. They heard the wind. I don't know if they ever saw the flames. They certainly heard the languages, right? Got their attention. Startled them, amazed them. What on earth is going on? Now God is doing it through this one poor beggar being totally healed. Now, why some people get healed and some people don't get healed, we will never know fully until we meet Jesus face to face, right? And I know that we've had church members here who have been sick and have constantly asked God for healing, physical healing, and it's not happened. But that doesn't mean to say God's ignoring their prayers. It doesn't mean to say that healing is not happening in some way. Do you remember this amazing man, Paul, who had this thorn in the flesh? We are never clearly told what the thorn in the flesh was. I personally believe it was eye defects, eye disease that he had. And any preacher will tell you how, it's, how important it is to be able to read and study, so much more so for one of the greatest apostles, the Apostle Paul. But what did the Lord say? Paul petitions, Paul fasts, Paul does spend those nights in prayer with God, asking for physical healing. This is a huge 
obstacle, Lord, in me spreading the gospel. We know you want the gospel spread throughout the world. And, and you've called me to do that, to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, please, please, I'm begging you, Lord, take this defect away from me. He asked one time. He asked two times. I wonder how many times that beggar had prayed similar prayers for his ankles and his feet. And he asked third time. Third time? Is it three strikes and you're out or third time lucky? Pretty hard to answer that if you think about it. Because what would seem a total rejection, the Lord said, Peter, uh, Paul, don't trouble me anymore on this issue. Seems like total rejection. I am not going to answer your prayers. Stop bothering me. Ever felt like that in your relationship with God? He's really not listening. He really doesn't understand. He needs to do these things. It's so obvious to me. Why is it not so obvious to him? But when Paul eventually truly understood that when he is weak, then he's strong. God can use him in, in new ways. The glory would always come to God through the ministry of Paul because of his weakness. So I don't fully understand why this man could touch people, say the word, maybe touch his handkerchief or whatever, and lots of people would get healed. And then for himself, God says, no. God's ways are not always our ways, are they? He sees the end from the beginning. He knows what is best. And if you're a sickly, infirm person, you, you just have to claim some of these uh, promises, maybe not fully understanding them, and just rest in the Lord and believe that the one who died for you, the one who truly loves you, is always going to do what is best. Well, here's a great surprise, certainly, for this beggar. He never woke up that morning thinking that he was going to be healed. He was just hoping for a good uh, income from the money that would come. And it's now got the attention of all of the people. That's really maybe the most important thing here, because these people need to be gathered in. These people need to be saved. And so the people recognized him as the man who was sitting at the temple gate called Beautiful. They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So now God has their attention. What a blessing for the beggar. But hopefully it's going to come a greater blessing because people are going to respond to Jesus Christ. Before we move on from this section here, I want us to think about, as we're going about our everyday lives, at the hospital, at school, wherever you work, when you go into the Safeway store, going to Walmart, going to Costco, think about what God is doing. Ask Him to open your eyes. Do you think Peter and John woke up one morning, the Lord woke them up at seven in the morning and says, hey, it's going to be healing day today. No, it was a normal day for them. Certainly was for the beggar, and yet God did something amazing. So as you're going about your everyday business, we discussed this earlier, 
when we were studying Galatians. Think about what God is doing. Ask Him to open your mind, open your heart, so you can see the hand of God, maybe in even small, mundane events that happen. In verse 11, while the beggar held on to Peter and John, he's not letting them go. You bring miracles into people's lives, they don't let go easily. All the people were astonished and came running to them in the palace called Solomon's Colonnade. That's where Jesus had, had preached and taught and done some miracles. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by, your own power or, by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's a good way to talk to Jewish people, by the way. The God of our fathers has glorified His servant Jesus. Do you remember the glorification part? That's Acts chapter 1. Jesus ascended up to heaven. He's welcomed by the Father. He's welcomed by the heavenly host. And He is exalted. When He came to this earth, it was as though He descended. He humbled Himself took the form of a baby, a human being. But, but at his ascension, he was exalted. So when we talk to Jesus, when we pray to Jesus, we are talking to, to the one who is King of kings and Lord of lords. Many in this crowd, of course, would know about Jesus dying on the cross, but they wouldn't fully understand the reason for that. So you need the explanation. You always need the explanation of Jesus. Don't ever assume that people understand about Jesus. Sometimes I think many church members don't understand about Jesus from what I hear them saying and the way that we treat one another and the way that we behave. But certainly those who don't claim the name of Jesus don't know about the Lord Jesus Christ. So here they wouldn't understand about Jesus on Peter's doing the explaining. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified His servant Jesus. You handed Him over to be killed. You disowned Him before Pilate, though He had decided to let Him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One. Were they responsible? You're not sure. You handed Him over. You disowned Him, verse 13. You disown the holy and righteous one, verse 14, and ask that a murderer be released to you. Were they responsible? Of course. The text is clearly saying that. You kill the author of life. Are they responsible? But God raised him from the dead. We, were witnesses of, we are witnesses of this by faith in the name of Jesus. This man whom you see and know was made strong. That's the beggar that they're talking about. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through Him that has given this complete healing to Him. Now that's an interesting statement. That needs some thinking about. The faith that comes. Who's the faith coming through? Is the faith coming from Jesus? Is the faith coming through Peter and John? Does this beggar have faith? Well, it's really not, it's really not explained. It's just kind of thrown in there. That's in verse uh, 16. Has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. Now, sins of ignorance. 
are mentioned in the Old Testament. And Peter is clearly saying that this crucifixion of Jesus, for at least some in this crowd, maybe most of them, was a sin of ignorance. Is a sin of ignorance still sin? I mean, by definition, the way I asked the question, it must be. We're responsible for all sin. And it's very, very important as he offers Jesus to these people that they are convicted of their sin. And that's your job and that's my job and certainly the work of the Holy Spirit working through us to convict people of sin. Don't offer them Jesus without the conviction of sin. People who are not convicted of sin don't need a Savior. Well, they do need a Savior, but they don't think they need a Savior. But somebody who is convicted of sin, I've done something that's terrible, something that's going to face judgment from God, like those thieves on the cross, they both cursed Jesus out at first, but the Spirit of God kept working in the life of one of these thieves, and he says, what we've done, we deserve this penalty. Well, I don't know if crucifixion is a fair sentence for, for robbery, but we deserve this, one of the thieves said, but not him, not Jesus. Lord, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. They talk about faith coming to its zenith. What does Jesus say? He doesn't hesitate for a second. You shall be with me in paradise. It's a wonderful thing when a sinner is convicted of sin and realizes that Jesus Christ is the antidote to the disease, the poison of sin. It's an amazing thing. I personally believe this beggar man had physical healing and spiritual healing. I mean, there's something truly amazing going on here. And it's a possibility, at least the spiritual healing is a possibility for all of them in this crowd who are astonished and amazed and probably very, very confused. So he says in verse 17, you acted in ignorance as did, um, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what had been foretold through all the prophets. Even Jesus in his prayer, forgive them, Father, they do not understand what they're doing. Now that doesn't mean to say they're not responsible. And many of these leaders who truly were responsible for putting Jesus on the cross, did repent. Some believe that they became the ones who persecuted Paul. The strong Jewish Christians who had a big emphasis on the importance of the law of God. But I don't know if we can <clears throat> prove that. Okay, so the prophet said that the Christ or the Messiah would suffer, verse 19, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that the times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ, the Messiah, who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. What does repent mean? In this context, it means change your mind about Jesus Christ. 
you thought he was the one that was cursed of God. Yes, he was cursed of God, but not because of his sins, not because of his own mistakes, because of your sins. Your sins that sent him to the cross. Jesus received the curse for that. Now, will you turn to Jesus? Will you change your mind? Will you repent of these terrible things that you have done? Turn to Jesus. When we turn to Jesus, good things always happen. Forgiveness, gift of the Holy Spirit, declaration of righteousness, many good gifts come when we turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. He must remain, this is Jesus, in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as He promised long ago through His holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything that he tells you. That's taken from the book of Deuteronomy. I wish we had time. I know we started early today, but um, if you're taking notes or if you have a study Bible, notice you're where it's cross-referencing you to, to Deuteronomy chapter 18. And the idea there is that a series of prophets would come. There would always be the prophetic line. But one day, the prophet, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, though it just calls him the prophet, he is the one. So there would be an expectation in, amongst the Jewish people of these promises. And there were many of them in the Old Testament. He's going, going to go on to talk about Samuel making promises about David or or Moses uh, making promises, as we see here in, in Deuteronomy. So, but it's always pointing forward. That's what the Old Testament does. It points forward for the one who is to come. The New Testament interprets the one who came. It helps us. We, we need understanding just like this crowd needed understanding. They had apostles to explain things to them. We have apostles prophets to explain things to us through the New Testament. Not, there's not a one person in this room that understands correct things about Jesus unless it's revealed to you in the Word of God. Yes, God could give you dreams and visions, but He rarely works that way. Usually, He does not work that way. Or if He does, in the dream and the vision, He will often take you to the Word of God. So we've all heard missionary stories of, of some, some native person somewhere who is in great ignorance about the ways of God, but, but the Spirit of God is working, 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 and they have some dream. Often he'll use dreams in situations like that, and they see uh, a face of, a, of uh, I don't know, a face of a white person or a face of someone with red hair or whatever, or somebody who's bringing a book, and ultimately God gets us back into the Word of God. And then, of course, all of the, over the many centuries, the work of the, the missionaries to get us a Bible in our hands. I, to me, this is one of the uh, amazing things about the way human beings behave and act, that we can have Bibles in our midst. When I've told my story of how I came to Christ, then I I refer to a Bible I was given when I left school. So here's a 15-year-old leaving school, 
clueless about the Bible, nobody to tell him the importance of the book that is being given, and it just is thrown on a shelf, gathering dust. But how God will get us to the point of blowing the dust off, opening the book. How many Bibles are there in America in people's homes? And how many of them are actually being read? And today we can have so many different translations. We can have Bruce uh, quoting the Living Bible paraphrase. We have lots of tools, aids. Do we really take advantage of them? And do we help people? We have people right in this building this morning who are needing help to understand the Bible. Who's willing to help them? We have employers of employees of people here this morning who need Bible studies. Who do I go to as pastor in this congregation and say, okay, send Fred, send uh, Bill over. I know that they'll give them Bible studies. Because we're not just interested in Bible. We want people, church members, to lead people to Jesus. Sometimes that's really hard for us. We think they need to know about the mark of the beast and they need to know about the chronology of the Israelite kings. They need Jesus. Desperately need Jesus because they're dying in their sins. Now, can we go back to basics? Somebody hopefully led us to Jesus at one point. Do we feel the burden for the lost? Peter did. John did. And God knew that He could use them with the crowd at Pentecost, and with the poor beggar, the individual person. They had learned the value of both. Why? Because God is at work in the lives of people. And I believe He is in the Anderson area, in the Reading area, in the Cottonwood area, wherever you come from, wherever you live, there are people who desperately need Jesus Christ. But pastor... When I share Jesus with them, they don't want to know. Right? So what's new? Do you think these people were lining up at the temple steps saying, hey, Peter, John, tell us about Jesus. Bring it on. Do you think Satan gives up even one inch of ground easily? But we should learn that many of the ones who object There is some fertile soil there to work with. Don't get discouraged, and certainly don't take it personally. Do people think Seventh-day Adventists are cultish? Do you take it personally? God is bigger than our criticisms. Jesus says they're not saying it about you, they're not persecuting you, just you. It's me they're doing it with. And a lot of this is ignorance. If people understood what Seventh-day Adventists believe, if people understood what it takes to come to Jesus Christ, it takes conviction of sin, right? It takes faith and belief and trust in Him that He can take care of your sin problem. We don't put a long line of things that people have to do to come to Jesus Christ. We need to deal with the sin issue in their life, find ways of 
making sure they understand that they're sinners, of course, we can't leave it there. That's pure negative. But then we offer Jesus as the solution to their sin problems. If you can wrap it up in your own little testimony and give that in two or three minutes, then all the better. Do you notice how Christ-centered this is? Can you see that? And it started with, with one human situation, one individual, one beggar with real needs. Everybody who walked by him, at least at first, probably said, poor guy. But they also probably thought of him as cursed of God too. After all, if you're sick and frail and so on, it must be God cursing you. He must have done something bad in his life. That was the way that Jewish people often thought. Some of them still think that way today. Not just Jewish people, but everybody. Lots of people. If you're blessed by God with health and strength and so on, then okay, great, you're, you're doing something right. But if you're sick and frail and, and needing so much help from people, so dependent, then you must have done something wrong. But Jesus clearly showed that that way of thinking was, was flawed. And now when they see this guy jumping and praising and, and, and just ecstatic, praising God, ecstatic with happiness, then they're scratching your head and saying, what on earth is going on here? People that are cursed by God are not supposed to behave that way, right? So anyway, in verse 22, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you, everything Jesus said. Go into the world and teach them everything that I have taught you. Nothing that Jesus shared is unimportant. Anyone who does not listen to him, will what, what will happen to them? They'll be destroyed. They'll be completely cut off. Negative judgment for those people. Not because they're any worse than, any, than those that get saved, but because they didn't go to the only solution to the problem. God has only given us one way of being right with Him and spending eternal life with Him, and that is to go through the Lord Jesus Christ. He mentions, indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, so he's marshalling his argument here. He's not just saying, hey, believe in Jesus. Next, please. He's giving an argument. He's laying a foundation. They believed in the Hebrew Bible, so he's giving them examples from the Hebrew Bible. We just dealt with Moses. Now we'll deal with Samuel, who, who gives promises to David. From Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days, and you are heirs of the prophets, and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. Back to Galatians. Some of us were actually quoting that very verse from Galatians, from Genesis this morning. Here we find it in the book of Acts. Same promise. That all peoples, Jews and non-Jews, who we call Gentiles, are included in this plan. Does God want... Pastor, are you telling me that God wants everyone to be saved? So that's what it says. Your offspring and all peoples on earth will be blessed. And when God raised up His servant, He sent Him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. So we turn from our wicked ways and we turn to Jesus. And you know, in a sense, 
don't worry about don't worry about your progress as a Christian. I mean, you should there is a place for self-examination. There is a place for seeing if you're really in the faith. But you can't stay there too long. Learn the lesson that God is telling you. If you're a lazy Adventist, then ask God to change you. Mix it up. If you're bored with your Adventism, then mix it up. If you're bored with your Adventist, you become Lutheran, right? No, if you're, if you're tired and you're burnt out in life, it doesn't mean say you retire. You reinvent yourself. You find new. Tired of the King James? Read another translation. Tired of the NIV? Now we're going to ESV. Have you noticed that in our Bible study guides? Sabbath school quarterlies? ESV. What does that mean? I'm not sure what it means. Probably English Standard Version or Easy, easy English. I don't, know. I don't know what it is. But it is a legit translation that is now in our quarterly. Some of us, the scholar who wrote, I don't know his name, the scholar that wrote our latest study on Galatians is using it along with uh, the King James and the NIV and so on and so forth. Find a way of mixing it up. In my car, I have a bunch of CDs. I have time to listen to them. Right? But if I, no matter how good some of them are, do you want to know some of my favorites? Nah, it's not good if I tell you that. You might not shake my hand in the foyer after the service if I tell you that. But even my favorite, favorite ones, the best of the best, I can't just keep listening to them all the time. You've got to mix it up. God is a God of variety. He is an interesting God. So we should never become bored and dull and so on. And I'm sure at the end of the day, when John and Peter put their head on their pillow, they said, we thought we were just going to the temple to pray. God had other ideas in mind. And I don't know when Peter and John put their head on the pillow whether the beggar was still holding on to them because he wasn't going to let go. Nice problem to have, though. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the book of Acts, and indeed all of your word. Because in your word we find this variety, and yet we keep coming back, uh, whether in Galatians or Acts, to how do people get to know you? How do people become right with you, in a right relationship with you? And Lord, hopefully we've, we've understood by now, it's simply by turning to Jesus Christ. When people do that, you forgive them their sins. You declare them righteous because you see them righteous in Christ. You see them as children, sons and daughters in your holy family. And we thank you, Lord. And we want to praise you this morning for bringing us to Jesus Christ. We see so many who are outside of that relationship. And Lord, no, no matter how diseased they are, no matter how dependent they are, may we be the givers and give what we have, what is the most important in our lives. We want to give Jesus to these people. Lord, yesterday we, we uh, had a, 
Veterans Memorial for Ted Moore. We thank you that Ted took seriously witnessing to his neighbors. And George is here this morning because Ted witnessed to him. Lord, do we have eyes to see and ears to hear what you're doing in the lives of people? So may we leave this building today, Lord, energized that somehow, some way, we're going to be looking for people whose lives you're touching and who are going to respond to the offer of Jesus Christ. Lead us to these people, Lord. Help us to take seriously this love that you have for the lost. Give us this same passion, the same love. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen. Amen.